On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, urban legends, conspiracy theories, hoaxes, and crazes, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I've seen pictures of you, Mr. Elkins, and you were dressed just like a lady. Yes, but don't forget, I always had a cigar in my mouth. My father hoped I'd be a boy. What a disappointment. A girl my mother cried. The corporal behind the desk would look up and you'd know, and he'd say, well, good morning. I think the police department are entirely too lenient with these vicious exhibitions of sex. I don't see what's happening to our youngsters today. The modern drag queen, as we know her, has become an American archetype, towering over us in six-inch heels, hair high enough to touch the great blue firmament above with cerulean eyeshadow to match. To some, she is a beacon, to others, a beast, but to all, she commands our attention and means much more than she means to, undermining or overhauling the psychic conceptions of gender and sexuality so central to our staunch sense of stability and national security. But before the Stonewall protests for queer rights of 1969 kicked open the closet door and pushed aside a line of faux fur coats to reveal the otherworldly colors of gay Narnia, what was called female impersonation was a pursuit as potentially manly as it was potentially damning. For our purposes, we're going to try to separate the performance of drag or on-stage cross-dressing from those who lived their everyday lives as transgender or gender non-conforming people. I'm going to use some outdated terms that make sense in their historical context, and I'm going to use the pronouns that each person in our story used in their own lifetime to avoid any retrospective assumptions about how they might identify today. Our series will be exploring this art form from its earliest American beginnings up until the gay liberation movements of the 1970s changed everything the public had come to believe about those who chose to don women's attire. 
We will not only study these female impersonators themselves, but also the reactions of the public, the crazes and the panics that followed these controversial figures throughout their careers as different national climates affected our perception of gender dynamics and identities. These episodes will tell the story of who could and who could not appear in drag, who was celebrated in their time, and who was treated as a dangerous deviant, which always seemed to come back to the question of who was performing, and even more importantly, why. We'll see that most of the time, if drag queens wanted to present their femininity on stage to both safety and success, they had to, at the same time, perform a cartoonish masculinity offstage, a campy and flamboyant parody of the red-blooded American man. William Dorsey Swan was born into slavery right before the Civil War. But by the time he was in his early 20s, he was a free man living in Washington, D.C., where he would go on to crown himself the Queen of Drag, possibly the first ever person to use that term. Because townspeople burned his home to the ground upon his death in 1925, much of his life story was lost until scholar Channing Gerard Joseph unearthed his history for a forthcoming book called House of Swan, Where Slaves Became Queens. As a teenager, William watched the annual Emancipation Day Parade that celebrated the ending of slavery. The leading attraction of this event were the elegant Black women called the Queens of Liberty, who rode through the crowd on elaborate floats dripping with flowers. And in these women, William saw something that resonated inside himself, something about their larger-than-life poise and pageantry, their beauty and the hard-won freedom they represented. William and his friends began to quietly spread the word about something major that he was dreaming up, what he called a drag, which may have been a play on the term grand rag, used to describe the masquerade balls that had been popular at that time. But William's parties were different. They centered female impersonation. But it was not the cheap comedy meant to elicit laughter from straight knuckleheads, as other forms of female impersonation would prove to be. These were glamorous, somewhat serious events where men dressed in elaborate ball gowns and competed to be crowned that evening's Queen of Drag we can surmise that William was gay before there was a word for that identity, when there were only homosexual activities, not homosexual people. He was known to have a romantic relationship with a man named Pierce Lafayette, who had once been enslaved by the vice president of the Confederate States of America. 
It was Pierce's stylishly decorated two-story house that would serve as the location for some of these drag balls. These events were held at least once yearly, from 1882 to 1896, but eventually police uncovered these gatherings and began to raid them violently. And these underground parties full of black men in women's clothing proved big news. And the newspaper publicity they generated meant, of course, that psychologists also had to weigh in on what all this unnatural behavior meant about those performing it. Dr. Charles Hamilton Hughes called the drag queens a, quote, organization of colored erotopaths, as well as a, quote, lecherous gang of sexual perverts. The most memorable, the most consequential police raid on this lecherous gang of sexual perverts came in mid-April of 1888, on the day of William's 30th birthday party. Here is how it all unfolded, as told in a D.C. newspaper called The National Republican. The article is titled, The Queen Raided, Unexpected Interruption to Her Banquet and Ball. Her Majesty Shows Fight with a Policeman. In contest, her handsome dress was torn off. All landed in the station house. Doubtless, not one of the citizens ever knew that on F Street's busy thoroughfare, there was such a place as that raided by police, or that human beings could be found who would lower and disgrace themselves as those who were placed under arrest and taken to the first precinct station house. In the back room of the third story of the F Street building, a scene was presented of 30 men parading about in the room, many of them in women's clothes, and the apparel that they wore appeared from a distance to be of the finest materials, cut in the latest style. The police watcher at the window had to be very quiet, as the least noise would have been easily heard by the colored drag party. The cop called in backup, saying, I've gone on to a drag on F Street. When the officers entered the hall, the sound of music was heard, and the atmosphere of the hallway was heavy with perfume. One cop stumbled, and an attendee called out, Police! And several of those attending jumped out the third-story window and onto the first, apparently falling through a skylight. The leaders did not seem to be paralyzed with fear. On the contrary, they showed fight. This was the case with the Queen, whose character was impersonated by Mr. William Dorsey. The Queen stood in an attitude of royal defiance. Her arms hung by her side. On her head was a black wig. The long white buttoned gloves reached almost to the shoulders of her arms, and the He Queen seemed bursting with rage. The ten-foot trail to her low-cut and short-sleeved white silk dress stood out its full length and appeared spread for a full reception. Her Majesty recovered speech and, advancing her right foot, which was cased in a gold-embroidered black slipper, she said with a haughty air, You is no gentleman. 
The officer made a grab for the queen, but the touch was too much for the royal one, and she fought the policeman's approach and arrest. They had a rough and tumble in the room, and by the time it ended with the queen pretty thoroughly disrobed, she, he, was brought to the light, and there had been a great transformation, and the queen of white satin loveliness proved to be a lightly built man. This action on the part of William, this physical defense of his community against police, was perhaps the first queer resistance ever recorded. After another raid eight years later in 1896, William was arrested on the bogus charge of keeping a disorderly house, which translated to running a brothel. He was delivered an abnormally heavy sentence of 10 months in prison, with the prosecutor telling the courtroom bluntly that if he could, he would put him in prison for 10 years for his homosexual behaviors due to William's, quote, evil example in the community. He continued, quote, I would like to send you where you would never again see a man's face and would then like to rid the city of all other disreputable persons of the same kind. Furious, William Dorsey Swan demanded a pardon by President Grover Cleveland, and though it was not granted, this was the first ever recorded instance of anyone taking legal action on behalf of the queer community's rights. At the same time that William Dorsey Swan and his Queens of Drag were being arrested for their evil example, wildly popular minstrel shows made rich celebrities of white actors who performed in blackface and sometimes full drag, presenting offensive caricatures of black women for a mostly white audience who were there to laugh heartily at parodies of the most oppressed. Other mostly white female impersonators were performing out in the open for crowds of working class men, women, and children on the public stage of the rowdy vaudeville scene, besides stand-up comics, circus performers, burlesque acts, ventriloquists, singers, and dancers. And these he-she's, as they were often called, were some of the highest paid performers in America during the late 1800s and early 1900s. We present to you now by remote control that famous artist, Mr. Julian Eltinge, female impersonator. The undisputed vaudevillian king of queenly impersonation was born around 1881 with the tragically unremarkable name of William Dalton. Growing up in rural Montana, his mother discovered that her young son had a precarious little secret. But instead of condemning him, she encouraged his blossoming taste for wearing women's clothing and allowed him to begin a career in female impersonation. As a teenager, William would easily find a paying stage at local saloons that catered to working-class men. 
But when his father caught wind of what his son was doing, he beat him so violently that his mother moved him to Boston to keep him from further harm. The now 18-year-old William Dalton needed a new name to go with his new life in the big city, and he settled on the elegant moniker of Julian Eltinge. Working as a dry goods salesman by day, he also took classes at a local dance studio, where his teacher noticed his incredible skill at female impersonation and pushed him to take it seriously, which he did, eventually becoming not only a star on the vaudeville stage, but also on Broadway and in touring shows across the country, even starring in early silent movies to rave reviews. But it was on the vaudeville stage that Julian spent most of his career, standing tall and stocky, each night corseted tightly and done up with two hours of makeup and body powdering, his nightly dew chosen from a wall of innumerable wigs. Other variety show, He, She, Acts, usually focused on the comedic effect of a goofy man dressing as a woman. But Julian would appear so fully dolled up that it was difficult to tell that he was not in fact a woman. And his early shtick was to yank off his wig at the end of the show, shocking the often unaware audience. This caused roars of applause, laughter, gasps, and certainly more than a little anxiety in the majority straight audience of men who might have, God forbid, experienced a confusing moment of micro-horniness for the lovely women he portrayed. This was a time, and isn't it always, really, when men were struggling with their masculinity, unsure of how their work, and thus their self-identity, would look in a post-industrial era, especially as the first movement for women's rights shook the foundation of the nation's gender-power dynamics. Fears that the new industrialized culture had become more feminine were seen in turn-of-the-century figures like President Teddy Roosevelt, who became obsessed with all things hyper-masculine, heading back to the land, performatively rustling cattle, slapping the asses of his fellow manly men after a successful, but also probably embarrassing, slapstick lassoing of a calf. So in order to find the success he did, Julian Eltinge had to prove to his audiences, to his critics, that although he embraced a feminine side, he did not like doing it. It was simply a job, an act that he did because it brought him boatloads of money and fame. He explained in interviews that he was no different from a ventriloquist or magician. And most importantly, he was not a fairy, a common term for an effeminate man. In one interview, he told a reporter, quote, Dame stuff doesn't appeal to me. When I retire, I hope to get into overalls and dock the barber. Oh, I 
lovely pictures of you, Mr. Elkins, and you were dressed just like a lady. Yes, but don't forget, I always had a cigar in my mouth. <laughs> To continue to counter any suspicious whispers, he told the press that he worked as an amateur farmer on Long Island. He was almost always seen chewing a cigar immediately following his performances. He dated women a little too publicly, kissing them with one eye on the cameras to make sure they were getting this. He began to manipulate the press in other ways as well, staging boxing matches or getting into real rows with those who questioned his masculinity. One story tells of a rehearsal for a show in which a malignant grin was apparently shot to Julian by a stagehand. He stopped the rehearsal immediately and growled out to the rest of the crew. Now I'm a man. I may be a female impersonator, but the first guy that makes a crack about me is going to get a punch in the mush. In Boston, a reporter wrote of Julian's habit of angry cursing, quote, The swear words that ripped so easily from his lips in a fine, manly voice relieved us both. They soothed his anger and reassured me of his masculinity. Perhaps the best legend of his manhood was that, while fishing, he was stabbed straight through by a marlin. You see, it was very important for the public to be able to distinguish Julian from other female impersonators who might go too far in blurring the hard lines of sexuality and gender certainty. It was a scary thought that a man could accidentally be attracted to another man. And so, to prevent a gay oopsie-daisy, there needed to be a kind of counterweight so that the whole thing could remain in the realm of meaningless amusement, so that it wouldn't mean anything more than that. Julian's promotional material presented advertisement images of him as both a man and a woman side by side. An example I love shows Julian in rolled up sleeves, an oar in his hands, pushing a rowboat full of four of his female characters who swoon at the camera. Because of his ability to authentically portray both genders, the Chicago Tribune's drama critic coined the term ambisextrous to describe him. The New York Evening World newspaper, in tandem with the rest of the media, made sure to differentiate him from other more suspect drag queens. Quote, There are a host of female impersonators, and those who are not abominations are pests. Eltinch is the exception. In a 1913 article in the Detroit News, entertainment writer Amy Leslie wrote that Julian was, quote, brawny, intensely masculine, and has the objectionable and difficult field of female impersonation all to himself because the age loathes the usual creeping male defective who warbles soprano and decks himself in the frocks and frills of womankind. 
She continued, charmingly, quote, these freaks disporting themselves clamily before rather irritated audiences have nothing in common with talent. They are a flaming insult to any intelligent, normally healthy and sane audience. There has been much speculation about the true sexuality of lifelong bachelor Julian Eltinge, but there is no hard evidence that he was gay or straight or anything in between. Whether closeted or not, had he expressed even a trace of homosexuality or gender variance in his offstage life, he likely would not have been able to find success on the stage, and certainly not in his other feminine endeavors like Julian Eltinge's magazine of beauty hints and tips, where he sold his own line of cosmetics, corsets, and shoes, and gave beauty tips and tricks to the girls and women across the nation. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now, back to the show. Don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing. It don't mean a thing. All you gotta do is swing. Makes no 
Princess Julian was sashaying across some of the most famous stages in the nation, the Harlem Renaissance was beginning to take shape in New York City, a pivotal movement of Black creators that spanned the disciplines of literature, music, dance, theater, art, fashion, politics, and scholarly writing throughout the 1920s and 30s. One of the epicenters of this massive cultural revolution looked a lot like a ball thrown by William Dorsey Swan. The Hamilton Lodge in Harlem had been hosting annual masquerade balls since 1842, when a group of Black men petitioned to form their own Odd Fellows Lodge, a request that was eventually, if begrudgingly, granted. In 1869, on the 25th anniversary of the Lodge's founding, the group held an event called the Masquerade and Civic Ball, which was considered the very first drag show in America, likely serving as an inspiration for a young William Dorsey Swan, that future queen of drag. By 1916, the Hamilton Lodge was still hosting drag balls at different venues throughout the city, but the new progressive movement's obsession with curbing vice meant preventing events of ill repute. The ominously named Council of Fourteen investigated these drag balls and released a statement about the, quote, phenomenal male perverts in expensive frocks and wigs looking like women. They would put out a total of 130 reports on the immorality present at these gin-soaked, decadent queer extravaganzas and demanded that the government crack down on what became known as faggots balls or fairies balls. Girls were girls and boys were boys when I was the top. Now we don't know who is who or even what's what. Papers and trousers, baggy and wide. Nobody knows who's walking inside. Those masculine women and feminine men. But by the roaring 20s, the public attitude about these controversial events began to change dramatically. The horrors of World War I were finally over. The economy was in a wartime boom, and young adults with disposable income were ready to fucking party. But at the same time, the anti-vice crusaders passed the prohibition of alcohol, which pretty much led to the opposite of what they hoped, a decade-long underground booze-fueled bash. All on the hunt for liquor and novel experiences, middle-class and upper-class white hipsters flocked to forbidden black jazz clubs and drag balls, which was a massive shift from the strict segregation practiced by most of their parents. Where are we going? Well, you said you wanted to go slumming, so I picked a place to eat in the village. Only... Wild poets and anarchists eat there. It's pretty tough. Those of all ages, races, genders, and sexualities looking for bathtub booze and a good time had to mingle together with people very different from them, which led to a vibrant and complicated cultural moment. 
As the decade wore on, the Harlem drag ball scene grew more and more famous, and white drag queens who had access to more expensive clothing and accessories began to take over, and the judges of the contests, as well as the first place winners, were often exclusively white, which likely helped change the public perception of these balls, making them seem a little safer to the outsiders looking in, including the media, who reported on these events without the same venom they once used when writing about the parties of William Dorsey Swan. These uproarious drag events inspired a major fascination, leading to a full-blown pansy craze, as the newspapers dubbed it. Members of what the press called the third sex, or pansy performers, both drag queens and kings, became shockingly in vogue and widely accepted as the best new form of transgressive entertainment. These uncloseted events became so mainstream that at their height, audiences filled Madison Square Garden and the Astor Hotel, with crowds of 6,000 joining with famous celebrities and prominent politicians whose names often appeared in the gossip rags to little public condemnation. The pansy craze, unlike the vaudeville scene before it, actually centered queer people rather than masculine, strictly straight, or at least allegedly straight, female impersonators. My father hoped I'd be a boy. What a disappointment. A girl, my mother cried. And you can see when they got me, they both were satisfied. As far as I'm concerned, this thing is breaking up my life. I don't know whether I should take a husband or a wife. The identity category of homosexual was something finally reaching the mainstream, and white female impersonator Jean Malin was openly gay and would come to be known as the Queen of the Pansies at just 22 years old. He was a famous female impersonator, but he also acted as a flamboyant fairy MC at drag events, with a sculpted head of blonde hair, a baby face and rouged cheeks in a slim-cut suit. He lisped and swished his way through the audience, swish being a term for an effeminate gay man at the time, tossing out innuendos and double entendres, flirting with the men in the crowd, and hurling effective zingers at any hecklers who dared speak a rude word about him or the beautiful, ornately dressed drag queens that he welcomed onto the stage. Jean Malin, the young, unflinching fairy, became the highest paid nightclub performer of 1930 and one of the most famous people in America. You go in to give your girl a kiss in the hall, but instead you find you're kissing her brother Paul. Ma's got a 
sweater up to her chin. I've got a girdle holding him in. Those masculine women and feminine men. These events, as popular as they were with the hipsters, were still frowned upon by the anti-vice authorities. But that frown turned upside down when the mob took control of the pansy scene and started paying off politicians and the police. Officers actually began attending the balls to protect the performers and quash any unruly audience members. And they were even known to serve as judges for the drag competitions. But once mob violence at the pansy clubs began to fly out of control and the repeal of prohibition transformed the underground scene completely, the New York state liquor laws stipulated that alcohol could only be served in places that were orderly and declared the pansy clubs as places of ill repute. In 1933, Jean Malin died suddenly at just 25 years old in a car accident, which some credit as the death knell of the pansy craze. The economy had crashed, and the tone of the nation was grim yet again. And as usual, these anxieties were projected out onto scapegoats like the drag queens, who had so recently been some of the most beloved stars in America. Just like that, the craze was crushed. The anxiety around the loss of work and the future of masculinity was back. And, as if in retaliation, homosexuals and the gender non-conforming became some of the most popular villains in America's lurid imagination. I think the police department are entirely too lenient with these vicious exhibitions of sex. You're entirely right, Henry. I don't see what's happening to our youngsters today. He'll soon clean up this filth and educate the youngsters towards a better life. A sex panic struck during the Depression, with the tabloids flashing on their front pages graphic sex crimes against both adults and children, with moral crusaders petitioning for governments to crack down on all sexual deviance. And though homosexuals and female impersonators were rarely involved in these stories, they were grouped in with other sexual psychopaths, and states began passing laws that would see anyone labeled as such sent for an indeterminate amount of time to the psychiatric division of their state prisons. At the same time, new rules in theater and film called the Motion Picture Production Code, or the Hayes Code, forbid any mention of homosexuality, leading to a chilling effect on a community forced back into the closet after a brief royal reign. The Hamilton Lodge would hold its final ball in 1937, as politicians and police turned completely on the community and began violently raiding them, just as they had done with William Dorsey Swan's events decades before. 
even Julian Eltinge, still trying to make a living in this new era of extreme homophobia, was barred by police from performing as a woman at a, quote, known hangout for women who hold women's hands and men who hold men's hands. Julian altered his act for the times, depressingly displaying the gowns of his heyday on decidedly female mannequins, pointing to them and saying, For this number, I would have worn this lovely dress. But even that was too much in an American anti-drag panic, and he was arrested for doing his mannequin bit in a nightclub in Los Angeles. As we can see, even the masculine offstage reassurance of Julian Eltinge was not enough to protect him from accusations of sexual deviance. But as the 1940s arrived, this suppression of female impersonation proved not to extend to all men who donned feminine attire. In fact, that attire made some of our manliest men even manlier in the eyes of even the most patriotic of Americans. More after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now, back to the show. Through America's big guns, the nation roars, on guard. On guard to the end that Uncle Sam's manpower in industry, manpower in action, shall continue to answer America's call to arms. When America joined World War II to fight against the Nazi threat, the young soldiers shipped overseas became the national pillars of masculinity, living metaphors for the rugged, red-blooded strength of the greatest country in the world. But at the same time, our brave boys seem to really fucking love putting on sexy DIY drag shows for their fellow servicemen on bases all over the world. What became known as soldier shows, all-male plays and musicals that were written and choreographed by the soldiers themselves, were a way to keep the lonely and ladyless G.I.s entertained, to keep morale up, and to encourage them to avoid the vice of sex out of marriage that they believed any women performers would sluttily encourage. Since no women were allowed, the guys had to play the girls. But at the same time, it certainly seems like they weren't mad about it. 
lacking the proper costuming, accessories, and makeup they needed to really complete their looks, they learned to use what they could find around their bases, mop heads for wigs, bras made of coconut halves, bed sheets fashioned into floor-length gowns. But eventually, the practice became officially legitimized by the military itself, and providing our boys morale in the form of femme attire became a surprisingly high priority. The Red Cross and the USO took on the task of finding the outfits the GIs were asking for, with one soldier recounting that his troop was airmailed boxes full of gold lame dresses. Well, here's everybody in the office from the lieutenant on down trying on dresses. Everybody suddenly became a drag queen. Manuals called Blueprint Specials were printed and sent to every troop hoping to put on their own soldier shows. They contained not only pre-written scripts and stories, but also choreography for drag dance numbers, patterns for sewing dresses, and advice for how to scavenge materials to use for their costumes. Sometimes these numbers were simply hairy men wearing women's clothes as a gag, but to illustrate how racy things could get, there is a striking photo in a collection of images from these soldier shows of a GI in flamboyant makeup stripping down to reveal his crotch covered in feathers, while dozens of shirtless soldiers laugh gleefully in the background, one beaming with electric joy behind a big, fat cigar. Just like Julian Eltinge, in order for these men to do what they were doing, they had to prove that they weren't being too swishy about it. To mitigate any gay accusations, propaganda was promoted from within the military and through the American media, saying that these were just boys being boys, entertaining each other in a womanless world, and upping morale with their goofball antics. It worked. These shows became so popular within the bases that just six months after the draft began, a show called This is the Army, starring real members of the military, premiered at a packed Broadway theater in New York City, put on to raise money for the Army Emergency Relief Fund. President Franklin Roosevelt actually received the actors at a private showing, and it was reported by a D.C. journalist that his favorite part was a sexy little striptease performed by a man impersonating starlet Gypsy Rose Lee. This is the Army went to the Allied bases all over the world, with about 2.5 million troops seeing this show in total, and it also toured to every major civilian city in America. It was so popular that they produced a film version of the musical that included several very elaborate drag scenes and a really jarring blackface song and dance number that included white soldiers dressed as black women. This is the Army also starred none other than a young Ronald Reagan, though it is with a heavy heart that I tell you that he did not appear in drag.
You must be ladies. Don't worry, Miss Town. Merrily we appear on the scene. Hostesses of the stage door canteen. Entertaining soldiers who are going off to war. Glad to be of service, but we could do much more. They each could do with a gal. We'll greatly help them all round. But we simply must resist. We take an oath when we enlist to never be found. Canoodling around with a soldier. Since the show and the movie were playing for civilians, it was even more important for the public to believe that these were soldiers so masculine that they would indeed see actual combat, and soon, with the last scene of This is the Army showing the men being called to battle, singing a final number before marching off to a war that was just over the horizon. But the truth was that these particular soldiers were probably not going to be fighting on the front lines, instead continuing their careers as military actors in soldier shows or transferred to work in some other form of army entertainment, sometimes even using their talents for tasks like designing camouflage for their bases. Speaking of camouflage, the volunteer service, as well as the wartime draft of the 1940s, affected gay men too, and some brought with them a culture that had thrived quietly in underground scenes since the pansy craze was snuffed out. Even though this form of drag was presented to the American public as a hardline, heterosexual, ass-slapping bit of ironic fun, historian Alan Baruby, in his book, Coming Out Under Fire, The History of Gay and Lesbian Service Members in World War II, was able to locate and interview several gay men who worked on these soldier shows. The gays know each other and can tell. Sometimes it would be just walking into the squad room and uh, checking in, and the corporal behind the desk would look up and you'd know. And he'd say, well, good morning. According to these former servicemen, the plays and musicals were indeed chocked full of queer camp a kind of covert language that homosexuals developed in order to speak more openly while hiding everything in plain sight. Winking double entendres, over-the-top costumes, overblown feminine gestures, and ways of speaking that signaled to other gay men in a kind of secret code that could go undetected among the oblivious straits. Since the swishier soldiers often possessed that birthright talent for writing, costuming, and choreography, a lot of closeted queers were accidentally entrusted with creating and maintaining the performances, leaving a secret yet also explicitly gay imprint upon the touring productions. Former GI and gay man Frank Jacober told the author, quote, It was the way I kept my sanity, by being able to get into a kind of female role, to express my feminine side a little bit, 
The only way we got away with it was in drag. When we were doing those shows and we were dressed up in those crazy costumes, then you could get away with venting your feelings, getting another side of you to kind of have fun with. And fun they had on their private bases, with another former GI recalling how the female impersonators used to sit on the laps of frowning officers in the audience, with one dressed as Carmen Miranda even jamming a banana into one of their high-ranking mouths. The queens would work these tough guys until their knotted brows softened and they laughed at last, followed by the roar of the crowd who had been waiting for their scary superiors to break with bated breath. At the same time that they wrote their camp into the annals of military history, these closeted soldiers had to be extremely careful lest they be outed from the military, an unofficial policy that solidified itself in 1941 with the United States Army Surgeon General's office classifying homosexual proclivities as a reason to exclude potential soldiers from service. And by 1943, even gay people already serving were dishonorably discharged, losing access to the vital GI Bill benefits they had earned and becoming seriously stigmatized upon returning to civilian life. Not only that, but if a gay soldier was convicted of homosexual behavior, it could result in hard labor in a federal prison for up to five years. Toward the end of World War II, the Army began allowing service women to act in the soldier shows, and thus female impersonation became more suspect, meaning more about the dude still choosing to slip into gold lame when he didn't actually have to, though of course, no one ever actually had to. The military removed their explicit approval and sponsorship of drag, which meant men no longer had the cover of patriotic morale boosting to protect them from accusations of homosexuality, which by the end of World War II would be seen as a major threat to national security. And that's where we'll pick up with part two, where we'll explore not only the two decades leading up to the gay liberation movement, as well as the complications within the movement itself, but also take a look at a long ago anti-drag panic, which claimed that men and boys cross-dressing on the London stages of the 15 and 1600s might actually have the power to magically alter Alter and even turn to monsters, all those other men and boys who laid eyes upon this Elizabethan abomination. This was American Hysteria. Make sure you join us next week for part two of our series on early drag queens. If you want to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. 
where you'll get ad-free early episodes and you'll get access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show that producer Miranda and I do about the stories that didn't make it into the episodes. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. We'd also love it if you would leave us a voice message on our Urban Legends hotline at AmericanHysteria.com. All you have to do is share the most memorable teenage tale that you grew up hearing from a friend of a friend, or maybe even telling. If your story sparks joy within us, then you might get to hear your own voice on an upcoming episode of American Hysteria, where we dive as deep as we possibly can to get to the roots of your urban legends. Again, that's AmericanHysteria.com. Leave us a message. We would love to hear it. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Our sound designer is Clear Camo Studios. Our research assistant is Riley Swedelius-Smith. Our producer and editor is Miranda Zickler. And our voice actor is Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And to all my queens out there, swishy or straight, I hope you have a great week.